Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. I'm Lita Blackwood, um, and we're in for a real treat in this, sex, in this uh, panel, which is looking at everyday sexism and social media. And I, I think reflecting on the last couple of years, I, we would probably all agree that we couldn't really come to an event like this without having a panel that was devoted to looking at this issue in terms of social media. And I'm sure that like a lot of you, I have been struggling uh, with thinking about the role of social media, thinking about it both as a space where we witness a great deal of everyday sexism, and also a space where people are organising and collectivising to resist and, and well, actually, and, and also, of course, for backlash around these kinds of issues. So I have with me three amazing speakers. You will actually recognise some of them when they start to talk about the research that they have done. They're all women who have a real uh, voice on social media and around the kinds of topics that I think that we've all, you know, we've already heard people express interest in, for instance, around um, sexism in, in terms of toys and so forth and, and abuse towards women. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask each to speak for 10 minutes and then at the end of that we're going to have the open up to the floor for questions and discussion. Okay, so the first person who is going to speak for us is Olivia Dickinson and Olivia has a background in terms of digital media and, and with children and also in, in terms of educational resources, but she's here with a campaigning hat on because she is somebody who you, you might be aware of a campaign that she's been very involved in, which is Let Toys Be Toys. Um, and I think this is what we're going to hear more about. So thank you, Olivia. Um, hello. So um, I am from Let Toys Be Toys. Um, the Let Toys Be Toys campaign started in 2012 with a very simple ask, which was to stop limiting children's interest by promoting some toys and books as only suitable for girls and others as only for boys. Really, we're also challenging gender stereotypes in childhood and sexism in childhood. So this is a really good example of some of the things that we get tweeted. Um, you have got quite a lot of pink and blue. Uh, you get pink Pritt stick, pink Jenga, um, and there's also a Bible that's finally for boys. We're not sure if they've taken any of the stories out. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll see that the signs, which is one of the very first things the campaign tackled, say girls and boys. Most of those signs are now down, um, but we now have this sort of thing still around. So we've got a little nurse in pink, and a junior doctor in blue, um, which is constantly giving girls and boys different uh, views of what they can be. So we think that the signs and the stereotypes that they're representing really affect self-image and self-esteem, and they ultimately limit job expectations and subject choices. Um, so we often talk about how it should be about choice. We're not suggesting that girls can't play with pink things, but that all children should have a choice to play with anything they like. Um, and aren't toys meant to be fun, not for restricting you? Um, I tweeted earlier another graphic we've now done of the equal pay, equal play, 
uh, but it's something we're very passionate about, that if you give all children um, opportunities very early on, then they can reach their full potential. So we've had some successes. We started in 2012. At the very end of 2012, a group of um, parents on Mumsnet got fed up with the gendered Christmas shopping. Um, and I wasn't around at that point, but, pe but the um, people sort of managed themselves off Mumsnet, started an online campaign, started a website. And within two years, 14 retailers had taken down the boys' and girls' signs. Um, and 11 publishers, I think I've got that one, 11 publishers also agreed to let books be books. So that was a campaign we started on World Book Day in 2014. If you have children, you'll know that World Book Day is a big thing. You have to get your child dressed up in, I don't know, but as the Gruffalo or whatever. Um, and again, it can be quite gendered. There's too many Disney princesses for me. So these are the sort of books that were out there. You'll still see some. Most of them should be out of print. Tell us on Twitter. We'll chase the publisher. We've got lots of support from different children's laureates. Um, and really the focus for the books campaign was on books that are labelled like this so that it's cookery or colouring that's being gendered. We have never looked yet at book covers and types of books for, for children. Um, but we're quite pleased now that girls and boys can cook and eat the same food. So these are the um, 11 publishers, um, if you're interested, who have made a pledge, and you can call them out if you see any books that you feel are not fulfilling what they've pledged. So we've then gone on to TV adverts. So we surveyed TV adverts in 2015. Uh, we've then done uh, retailer websites and toy catalogues in 2016 and 2017. And this is the overwhelming sense for anything that's aimed at a girl. So anything that has only girls in the advert, um, the colour, the sound, the voiceover, the music is completely different from the boys, and I'll show you the boys in a minute. The other thing is that the girls' stuff tends to be about appearance, uh, domestic uh, appliances, uh, pretend play, uh, being sparkly, comes up as you can see, <laughs> Um, science actually got quite high on this, which we were slightly surprised by. Um, and then this is what the boys get. So, and this, this is from a lot of tea advert, TV, TV adverts, uh, late 2015, on all the children's UK uh, TV channels. Um, and it's reflected in the catalogues. If you look at catalogues at the moment, say Argos and Tesco are the big toy catalogues, um, you're getting the same uh, sort of effect. So again, the boys, you know, they can't be nurses or artists or cooks or even a dad. They, they have to go to war and, you know, uh, be sort of exploring. So this is what it used to be like. I don't know who remembers this. A lot of us from the campaign grew up in the 70s and 80s. And the Lego advert is from about 1979-ish and is sort of what we remember. We've then got two Argos catalogue uh, pages. You can see one in the middle is again from quite a while ago. The other one is much more up to date. There's a brilliant Twitter account that has literally just started in the last two weeks that we're very excited about called something like UK Vintage Catalogue. Look it up. And for, I don't know how they've managed it, but they've been tweeting 
Argos catalogues, all sorts from the 70s. Um, it has things like it has like mowing, uh, you know, lawn mowers, all sorts. But it keeps doing toy spreads, and they're quite surprisingly different. So have a look. Um, and we do tend to hear from grandparents actually that they feel it's got worse. Um, and we can generally look back and say it was sort of mid 90s when it started to get really pink and blue, and marketed in, um, separately. So. Thankfully, the Advertising Standards Authority have noticed this, um, and there was a report in 2017 called Depictions, Perceptions and Harm, and they are proposing a new rule that is currently being consulted on. These are the two um, sort of rulings that they would put in the, in the guidelines for how um, ASA and CAP would have to um, sort of rule on stuff. It is all self-regulating, but it could still have an effect. Um, we obviously like the fact it said ads could be targeted at and feature a specific gender, but should take care not to explicitly convey that a particular children's uh, product, pursuit, activity, including choice of play or career, is inappropriate for one or another gender. However, we have asked them to go further and make the point that it's not just about which children feature, but it's about the colours and the music and just the overall effect. Um, while we're talking about advertising, we have just launched a very exciting competition with Inspire in the EACA, which is the European Advertising. Uh, I can't remember the rest of it. Uh, but they are doing a competition for uh, students who work in PR and advertising to do a campaign for Let Toys Be Toys in 2019. So if you know anyone, please enter. And then the other thing that we often talk about, and that I think it's really been really interesting listening to the, the session just before, is our campaign is about the effect on boys as much as the effect on girls, because in the end you're not going to get change unless you tackle both. And this is one slide that I've always found really um, sort of heartbreaking. This is about how boys feel about being a boy. And overall, they're not very happy. Um, the other one that often comes up is they feel that they'll never be completely happy because they know they can't be a mum, which always makes people, when they're from sort of 10-year-olds have written this, because they haven't been told that they could be a dad and that if they are a dad, they can have some of the same responsibilities as a mum. And so there's a whole element here of boys feeling they have to, you know, hold in their emotions, um, fulfil certain gender roles, and that actually they're not really having much fun. The other thing that's a bit depressing is that the Young Women's Trust did a study in 2015 that found one in three young women, so young women counts as 18 to 30, think men are better suited to being an IT technician, whereas only 10% of older women think that. Um, and then there was also that older women were perfectly happy for men or women to be a plumber, and it was fewer younger women who thought that was acceptable. So attitudes feel that they're going backwards and it's having an effect on boys and girls. So we offer resources for schools, and we have done for quite a long time. Um, we advocate the Breaking the Mould resources from the NUT, which is now the NEU, so the, one of the teaching unions, which is the stereotype stop you doing stuff. Am I right for time? Yeah. Um, however, there was also, I don't know if you saw it, there was a documentary a year ago on BBC Two, uh, 
with the unfortunate name of Can Our Children Go Gender Free, which is no, but um, can you get some gender equity within the classroom? Yes. So um, I'd, 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 I'd recommend seeking it out. I think it's come off iPlayer recently, but you might be able to find it on YouTube. Um, and in that, they basically implement a lot of the stuff that's in that NUT recommendation, which includes 10 ways to challenge gender stereotypes in the classroom. And it can be as simple as just not lining up boys and girls differently um, and not giving the girls pink stickers. Um, so do seek that out because it will really sort of show you how easy it could be to make a change over just half a term and you already get much better behaviour from the boys and much higher self-esteem from the girls. Uh, so that's a, a bit more of, about that one. And then what we also have done, and we're keen to hear from people, is we did a teacher survey last year on how much teacher training, uh, how much training teachers get about gender equality or diversity or equality, and generally it's not much at all. So we haven't sort of collated it to go public. But the overall message is that there really needs to be some sort of fund publicly to enable schools and universities to actually be educating their teachers and their parents about how to treat girls and boys equally from when, either when they start school or even from when they're born. Um, so if you can influence that anyway, that would be great. Um, so these are our contact details. We are on Twitter. We ha very, very rarely suffer abuse, and we think it's because we don't say who we are. <laughs> so... <laughs> We, we do. Um, it's been really interesting because individuals will get copied in and they will get trolled and we don't. So um, maybe we've been lucky, but I think it is a really interesting one that the others can talk about. Thank you very much for that, Olivia, and, and very good tip um, after all of the bad news about things going backwards. Um, Okay, so the next person who we're going to hear from is Ismina Drodia. And Ismina is a researcher at Amnesty, and she's done a lot of work around technology and around human rights and looking at human rights for a lot of different groups, including with uh, Syrian refugees. But the work that she's going to be talking about today and, and that's relevant to this panel has been work looking at Twitter. And I think you'll probably recognise some of the things that she'll be talking about because it has had some um, coverage in the, me in the media. So I think Azmin is going to tell us a little bit about hashtag toxic Twitter. All right, hi everyone. Um, so before I start, I am going to actually give um, a trigger warning because my presentation will show some examples um, of abusive tweets that were sent to women, as well as testimonies um, from women about the abuse that they've received online. Some of this includes graphic descriptions of sexual violence, which I know may be triggering to some, so please feel free to step out of the room or take a coffee break for the next 10 minutes. Um, so the Toxic Twitter uh, report and campaign launched in March 2017, uh, sorry, March 2018, so this year, six months ago, um, and it was the result of 16 months of research looking at violence and abuse against women on social media platforms more generally, but specifically on, tw on Twitter. So I spoke to female journalists, politicians, um, women's rights activists, bloggers, games developers, and more about their experiences of violence and abuse on Twitter, 
what impact it had on their freedom of expression, so how it negatively impacted their right to freely express themselves, the psychological harms that are associated with experiencing online abuse, and what they think that Twitter should be doing to adequately deal with this issue. Um, and when I'm talking about violence and abuse against women, um, I'm talking about things like indirect and direct threats of physical and sexual violence, uh, sexual, and, sorry, misogynistic and sexist commentary towards women, other identity-based forms of discrimination, so racism, transphobia, um, anti-Semitism, as well as doxing, which is when someone publicly releases your private information publicly with the aim to cause you alarm or distress. So if someone were to upload uh, my home address in a threatening way, that would be considered doxing. Um, or when someone uploads or publishes private or intimate images of a woman uh, publicly without her consent. So this is a quote from Dr. Emily Grossman. She is a uh, scientist and um, science broadcaster, and she was asked to appear as an expert on a very popular national debate program. Um, and she received a, a wave of abuse on Twitter. Um, her notifications were flooded when she, when she you know, uh, left the program and got, and got home. And this is what she said, and the reason I chose this quote, I interviewed about 86 women, is because I think it really covers the breadth and depth of everyday sexism that women face on Twitter. So she said, there are personal attacks on me and my appearance. There was sexually abusive and aggressive language. No rape threats or death threats, but certainly people talking about their cock and slapping it around my face, what they wanted to do to me, tearing me a new arsehole. Then there were these comments on my qualifications and my career, undermining me as a scientist. And there was a category of messages that seemed to be attacking me as a representative of all women, saying that women weren't clever enough to be scientists, that we were stupid, illogical, irrational, if you can't stand the heat, get back into the kitchen, or if women aren't succeeding, blame it on their DNA. And then there were comments saying I must be a feminist and be crazy, and asking why I hate men, or suggesting that maybe my uncle raped me. So, um, I think it's really important here to, you know, obviously people of all genders can experience violence and abuse online, but as you can see from Emily's words, there is a very gendered nature to the abuse that women experience. So often it's rooted in harmful and sexist gender stereotypes against women. Um, there are uh, references to women's uh, physical appearance and their bodies, um, and the threats against them are physical and sexual in nature. So many of the women that I interviewed for the Toxic Twitter report were uh, public figures, as I mentioned. But we also wanted to understand if their experiences of abuse on social media were um, you know, the same as women who are not necessarily in the public eye. So Amnesty International um, commissioned Ipsos Mori to conduct an online poll of women's experiences of abuse or harassment on social media platforms more generally, so not just Twitter, but other platforms as well. And what we found is that on average in these eight countries that you can see on the screen, 23%, so almost a quarter of all women had experienced abuse or harassment. So you can see the number in the UK is 22%, but really um, importantly and significantly is that women aged 18 to 24, that number jumps to 37%. So 37% of 18 to 24-year-old women in the UK have experienced abuse or harassment versus the larger data set um, of, of 22%. And here, we ask them about the type of abuse or harassment that they face, again, to try and understand the gendered nature of abuse. And so you can see that of the women who experienced abuse or harassment in the UK, 27%, so over a quarter of women, said that they had experienced and received threats of physical or sexual assault. And almost half, so 47%, said that it included um, sexist or misogynistic comments that were directed at them. 
And here are some examples of the types of tweets that I'm talking about. Um, and I think the reason why I showed you a very different variety of tweets on this on the screen is to show, is to sort of, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that there are different degrees and severities of the type of abuse that women can experience on Twitter. So as I said, some are rooted in harmful stereotypes, such as going back to the kitchen, making me a cup of tea. Some of them are very graphic threats of sexual violence against women. And then you have a whole host of other sexist, misogynistic abuse um, in between. So one thing that was really important for me to bring out in Amnesty's research on this issue was the intersectional nature of online abuse against women. And when I first started doing the desk research for this issue and around this issue, what I found were mainly stories of female journalists who were very bravely speaking about this issue um, and which was really putting it on the agenda. But what I did find is that most of the women that were speaking about this issue were mainly cisgendered white women. Um, and I really wanted to understand how women uh, with different backgrounds and different identities experience abuse online. And what our research found is that for women who experience different forms of discrimination offline, these same experiences of discrimination are mirrored online. So here you can see a quote from um, a former SNP member of parliament, Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh, where she talks about the abuse that she's faced online and she's faced a horrific amount of abuse um, that targets her as a Scottish Pakistani, that targets her as a Muslim, and that targets her as a woman. And this is a very specific project that we did, um, that we released last September. And it was looking at online abuse uh, targeting female MPs that are active on Twitter in the UK. So what we did is we worked with data scientists and we used machine learning to develop an algorithm to detect online abuse against female MPs active on Twitter in the UK between January 1st and June 8th, 2017. Um, so most of you will remember that June 8th was the day of the SNAP election um, last year. And we had a particular focus on the six weeks leading up to the election. Um, and this news story got a lot of coverage um, in the UK, which I think is really great, because what our analysis you know, shockingly found is that Diane Abbott, who many of you will know is the Shadow Home Secretary, but is also the very first black female MP in this country, received almost half of all abuse targeting um, female MPs um, in our analysis. So we use, we use machine learning to classify almost 900,000 tweets and about 2.85% of those tweets, or just, around, just over 25,000, were found to be abusive. But what we found is that Diane Abbott alone, um, in the six weeks leading up to the election, received 10 times more abusive tweets than any other female MP included in our study. And in the entire period of our analysis, from January 1st to June 8th, she received um, eight times more abuse. Um, what we also found uh, was that even when you take Diane Abbott out of, the, out of the picture, and the only reason we would do that is, unfortunately, she skewed the data so much because she received such a disproportionate amount of abuse. But even when you take Diane Abbott out of the picture and account for the fact that women of color are disproportionately um, less represented in parliament, black and Asian female MPs and Westminster received 35% more abuse than white female MPs. And I think this data really, really helps show the intersectional nature of abuse um, you know, facing women in politics, but also more broadly as well. And I really want to quickly mention as well that online abuse against women cuts across political parties. So when you look at the top five women who experienced abuse um, in the six weeks leading up to the election, as well as the whole period of our analysis, you'll see the three largest political parties represented. So I think it's really important to acknowledge that this, that, you know, online abuse targeting female MPs does not know political boundaries. 
So unsurprisingly, you know, all of this is going to have an effect on women and their right to freedom of expression online. And I think what was really important for Amnesty was to flip this narrative about the, the right to express abuse online to women's right to express themselves on social media and on Twitter freely and equally and without fear of violence. Um, and what we were particularly interested in as well is the far-reaching and harmful repercussions that this is going to have on younger women and particularly younger women in marginalized communities from participating in these public spaces. And almost every woman I spoke to said that they censored themselves in some way um, on, on Twitter um, as a result of the abuse they face. So sometimes that's just not posting about something or having to think five or six times before posting a tweet because you have to think about whether or not you have enough energy to deal with the backlash that day. Sometimes it's increasing your security and privacy settings to a point that the platform is unrecognizable in what it's meant to do. So uh, Jessica Valenti, who's a US uh, writer and journalist, uh, former columnist for The Guardian, um, I remember she told me that her security settings on Twitter are so high because she has received horrific abuse, including rape threats against her young daughter. Um, they're so high that she doesn't have any notifications from people that she doesn't follow on Twitter, which means that she's sort of talking you know, in this echo chamber. And also that every time, you know, if she has a fan or someone wants to engage in even a constructive debate with her about her writing, she doesn't get to experience that and she doesn't get to engage in that because that's the only way that she can protect herself online. Um, and then also, as some of you will know, you know, women have very famously just left Twitter because they could not deal with the abuse. So you have Leslie Jones, who was um, who faced horrific racist and sexist abuse after uh, starring in Ghostbusters 2. You have Ruby Rose, who just left Twitter a few weeks ago. She is um, a lesbian woman who uh, starring as, as the new Batwoman, who received horrific abuse. And Kelly Marie Tran, who was in Star Wars, and she's an Asian American, received you know horrific racist and sexist abuse. Um, so you know at some point, women just end up leaving because Twitter is not doing anything to, or not doing enough to, you know, solve this problem. And again, very quickly, what women are doing, how women are being silenced and censored online was also found in our online poll. So in the eight countries where we were women who experienced abuse or harassment, 78% of them said that as a result of experiencing that abuse, they changed the way they use social media platforms as a result in some way, whether that's increasing security settings or changing the way they, they posted. But significantly, um, on average, 32%, and in the UK, 30%, so almost a third of women, said that after experiencing abuse or harassment, they changed the way that um, they posted or shared an, an opinion online. Which I think, again, is really, really, um, really worrying because we've talked about what an important space these online platforms are for women to organize, to create, you know, to show solidarity, uh, for journalists to find work, for politicians to engage with their constituencies. So, you know, it, the fact that women aren't able to equally use these spaces is having a really harmful and negative impact, not just on their ability to express themselves, but also sometimes to be able to do their job. And really quickly, I, this is an area that is really, really under-researched and, as a result, I think understated. Um, and this is about the psychological impact of online abuse, particularly in the context of abuse from strangers that you may not know versus in the context of um, intimate partner violence. And every single woman that I spoke to talked about the harmful negative impact of psych the psychological impact of online abuse. And you can see from our online poll that of the women who experienced abuse or harassment in the UK, well over half to about two-thirds of women said that they had experienced stress, anxiety, or panic attacks as a result. They were less able to focus on everyday tasks, and they had a feeling of apprehension when either even just receiving a social media notification or even thinking about going on social media. So in terms of solutions, um, 
you know, we didn't just launch a report, we launched a campaign called Toxic Twitter as well, where we are asking the CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, to implement Twitter's own policies on hateful conduct and abuse. So much of what we've talked about and what I've talked about, um, Twitter says is not allowed on their platform, but their, imp their implementation of their own rules is both inconsistent and therefore inadequate to deal with this problem. And fewer than one in 10 British women think that Twitter is doing a good enough job to deal with it. So we're asking Twitter to enforce their own, their own policies and to be far more transparent about how they're interpreting it, you know, how they're training their content moderators, and to give us a lot more information about how they're implementing their own policies. And obviously governments have a role in this as well. They need to start in earnest challenging harmful and negative gender stereotypes, which is leading to you know, mirror the offline abuse that women, and discrimination that women are facing, um, but also ensuring that you know, law enforcement, when such reports um, are submitted to them, are able to you know, appropriately and respectfully and adequately um, deal with this. So I'll leave it at that, but if you have any more questions, obviously you can ask, and please do look at the Toxic Twitter report online. Thank you. I'd like to uh, thank Asmina for a very sobering presentation. Um, I think we keep hearing a, a familiar theme, which in, in, is that in some areas things seem to be getting worse. I'm not sure if we're going to hear anything that's a little bit more upbeat now. What we're going to is uh, Stephanie, <laughs> Stephanie Volland. So Stephanie is somebody who, she works for Prospect, and in fact, if you want to publish in Prospect, you could talk to, to Stephanie a little bit later. One of the things I liked in their uh, um, comments about what kind of things they publish is that they, they say that they like to, to publish contrarian views on topics, so that might be something that appeals to some of you. Um, so Stephanie actually is a very present voice in social media. She writes about a very broad range of things, but I think today she's here because she's also been involved in co-founding an organisation called Second Source, which is trying to challenge and campaign against some of the things that Asmina was just talking to us about. Thank you. Yeah, no, I've just been told that this was meant to be the fun panel. And um, <laughs> I'm going to be picking up on, on some of those themes as Mina talked about, specifically in the context of journalists and political engagement. Um, so not extremely fun, but there is going to be a funny picture of a bird. So we can all look forward to that moment. Um, as I say, I'm going to be talking about women's engagement in Twitter and how that relates to the political sphere. And as a web editor who increasingly finds part of my job is counselling young women who write for us and what sort of response their stories might get and how they'll be able to handle that. It's a subject that's very close to my heart. Um, what I'd like to say focuses around two propositions. One is that Twitter's capacity to be a space for political ideas and engagement is limited by gender and other bias, and that this matters. And the other is that the impact online abuse has on users, and in particularly on journalists in this context, inhibits our wider political discourse. Um, to give you the briefest gloss on Twitter, on UK Twitter, we have about 13 million users. Globally, there's about 500 million tweets sent a day. And Twitter styles itself, as we will see, as broadly an informational space. So this is taken from there about Twitter. And you can see it's somewhere between marketplace of ideas meets window on the world. What are people talking about right now? And the ideal on Twitter is that this is a dynamic conversation that everyone can join in. So looking at some more marketing materials, there's this focus on plurality at the top with Mindy Kaling and Karen Mo Brown, 
And then the bottom, a video campaign that centres on the idea of women telling their own story. Um, and they've got women from different races and backgrounds here. Within the UK political context, that ideal could lead, and people have attempted to make it lead with varying degrees of success to various things. So it could be, for instance, a place where MPs can hear directly from their constituents, and when MPs get their advice about how to use Twitter from the House of Commons, they encourage them to do this. And indeed, it can be a place where people in positions of power, uh, in positions of power more generally can be exposed to different voices and ideas. So in Michelle Hussain's new book, The Skills, for example, she gives this example of a reporter who sent her an article after hearing her talk about the Calais jungle. And this article said, you know, this name could be problematic even if it was coined by people within that camp. And she was able to think about that feedback as she went about her reporting on the Today programme. So she learnt something off Twitter. It challenged her in a productive way. So it can be a place where you learn a tremendous amount. It can be a place where you're exposed to voices that don't get mainstream approval. And as Olivia's talked about, it can be a place of organising, and certainly everyone from the second source met on Twitter initially. Um, but the reason we did that is partially because journalists, you won't be surprised to hear, have taken to Twitter like proverbial ducks to water. We love it. And the UK is one of the biggest news markets for Twitter. So YouGov research in 2014 found that 65% of UK Twitter users follow a news account. And that links back to the idea of what is happening in the world, find out on Twitter. What's really interesting about this, though, is that more of them follow an individual journalist than an official account. So 48% of UK users will follow a journalist, 40% will follow a breaking news account, BBC Sky, something like that. And in return, journalists learn from Twitter. 56% of journalists use Twitter as part of their research, so that idea of listening in on the conversation. And they do tend to follow other journalists. So Tony Hurst did some research in 2011 that found that mutual following within journalism is high. It's a polite way of saying we live in echo chambers. He put it, journalists follow other journalists mostly from their own organisation. <laughs> Now, within the UK media context, there's two reasons why that particularly matters. One is that Twitter is where rows can ferment that then become news. And again, the House of Commons tells MPs and laws that the mainstream news agenda is increasingly being shaped by Twitter. I mean, it tells them in the context of be careful what you're tweeting, but I think it's instructive more broadly. And we know that this is where journalists go to read other journalists' opinions. Groups like the lobby, who are the journalists who cover parliament, who have parliamentary passes, all follow each other and discuss politics on there. It's also a space where individuals can build their profiles, so think of that more likely to follow individual journalists. And that can be great. If you're young and you're based outside of London, that means you can join in without having to make it to the right pubs or spaces within Westminster, so it can be democratising. But that engagement looks different for different people. And the journalists whose interpretation tends to get the most airing on Twitter tend to be men. Part of that is just because there are more male political journalists on Twitter, so there's a roughly five to three ratio in favour of male users, and they tweet more. So they tweet 1.23 times more often than their female colleagues. But listed research shows that, even controlling for that, Male journalists get 4.3% more retweets from what are called influential users. And male influencers are more likely to follow men. 
So if you're an account with a lot of followers and you're a man on Twitter, you're likely to follow 58 to 42 is the average ratio. For women, it's 53 to 47. Both men and women tend to follow more men. You can do this if you're on Twitter, go on the app. Um, search in who do I follow and they'll tell you men, women, non-binary people who you're following on Twitter. Now they posit, listed, that part of this may be because men are more likely to include opinions in their tweet, 57 to 48. But in truth, that only accounts for a small percentage of the gap. Um, and I should add, I've not been able to find statistics in terms of race or other breakdowns, but I think we can assume, anecdotally speaking to other young female journalists, that they say, if you're a woman of colour on Twitter, you're even less likely to have your voice amplified. So what we find then is what is ostensibly a marketplace of ideas actually replicates, if not concentrates, the same dynamics that shape discourse elsewhere in politics. If on Twitter everyone can speak, not everyone is equally heard. If you do want to be heard, though, one thing that works very well, it turns out, is to be angry. Funny bird. Strident tweeting, doing tweets that create some sort of emotional impact, gets more response. We mostly know this because of companies trying to figure out how to go viral as it happens. Um, but what we also find, for instance, from this 2016 study in Cornell is that negative emotions spread faster. So they say anger spreads faster than joy. And we know also that when you get engagement on social media, when you get a like, a retweet, when somebody replies to you, you get a dopamine hit off the back of that. So if you want to keep feeling really keyed up and engaged and get the dopamine flowing, tweet crossly. You'll get a lot more engagement. So that's the backdrop. You've got this male bias in terms of what voices are heard, and we know that anger or strong emotions help drive engagement. Into that mix, then, we put in what I think is a loud minority of bullies. I hope it's a loud minority of bullies. I might be corrected on that in a minute. Um, and as Mina actually writing in the New Statesman not so long ago said, Twitter can be a scary place for women online, and I think after her presentation, it's very easy to see why. We also have Dinya Miatovic, who's the OSCE's representative on the freedom of the media, saying that abuse is a global phenomenon growing at a very rapid place. And that's everything from crude messages to death or rape threats, which online or off have always been used to try and control women. I asked one journalist who writes frequently on social media, Amelia Tate, if it's fair to say abuse is something you can anticipate if you're an outspoken woman online. And she said, I'd remove outspoken just spoken, a woman who speaks. I've now got Asmina's writing on amnesty research and some notes, but I probably don't need to talk about that. <laughs> so I then went and spoke to other women about this, and this is what one of my former colleagues who I used to work with at the New Statesman said. I stopped putting my opinions on Twitter long ago. Tweeting stuff you write always comes with the horrible knowledge that someone will say something abusive. I would hands down not have Twitter unless my job required it. One abusive response can ruin my evening if I'm not careful. Now, that's disturbing in its own right, but something we also have to bear in mind is we are not very good at processing abuse online. We are really bad at this. Psychologist Dr. Terry Apter has researched this, and she notes that not only is it easier to be abusive on Twitter, but we're really not set up to handle anonymous abuse. If you shout at someone in person and they look hurt, then that may cause you to back down or backtrack. Online, you don't get those signals. Abuse online is also harder to quantify, so Apta's written a book, Praise and Blame, and she says that blame hits us a lot more powerfully than praise. 
it goes back to evolution. If you're praised, if people in the tribe like you, you might get a bigger cut of the kill. If they don't like you and you're cast out, that can risk your life. So we are hardwired to take blame very seriously. So if somebody on Twitter says your book is rubbish, you can look at it and go, oh, yeah, no, but I don't really know who they are. It shouldn't matter. But you have to be quite robust and also have an undercurrent of how do I resolve this? How do I fix it? How do I not be thought of as bad? Now, some people would say, look, toughen up. These people you talk about are public figures and they have all the power here. And there are definitely people who are strident about refusing to be scared. So Jenny Alversio, I might be mispronouncing, is a Swedish news anchor. And she says, if someone can scare me to silence, we have a huge democratic problem and I refuse to be part of that. But in practice, finding the balance that allows you to do that is quite tr tricky. Isabel Hardman, who's at The Spectator and has spoken very candidly about abuse and mental health, has said that I understand the well-being staff in Parliament are now advising MPs to withdraw from the social media site. They say it's the equivalent of dripping their private parts in honey and exposing them to angry bees. A few now only post on Twitter, they don't read the replies. And this, uh, to again echo what Asmina is saying, is what journalists I speak to say as well. They set their settings to people they follow only, then you only read the other replies when you feel like you can, or they've deleted the app entirely. And what that means is, again, as Asmina said, you only hear from the people you follow, or your MP doesn't see what constituents are tweeting at them. So we end up with a situation where not only do we hear less from those voices that are marginalised offline, but the news agenda is shaped while these dynamics are in play. And actually the ability of people to listen is curtailed as much as it is the ability to speak. If you're an MP who's getting a lot of abuse on Twitter, you're less likely to spend time hearing what people are trying to say to you. Basically then what aims to be a democratic marketplace, which has become a really powerful part of our political position, is actually skewed. And that leaves us with the question, what do we do? <laughs> Thank you. Okay, well, I, I think you'll all agree with me that was actually a real treat, and we've had um, three very interesting presentations uh, showing both how, you know, the social media world is a place where people are, as we said, you know, organising and being able to use it in a very positive and, and democratic sense but at the same time it's posing a lot of problems for us and, and so some really interesting kinds of questions I'm sure have been raised for many of you so I think we've got about 15 minutes if I can just get an indication to begin with of how many questions we do have okay well we'll start by um, allowing you know question by question and then if need be we'll we'll group them so so I think the first hand I saw was there about the people who actually do the abuse rather than the people who suffer it. Yeah. Does anybody? Okay. Um, so we, we didn't focus on the perpetrators and we did that for a very specific reason which is that there is a lot of really interesting work on perpetrators but Amnesty was one of the first big human rights organizations talking about this issue and we really wanted to ensure that we were centering our narrative on women's experiences and we were framing it as a violence against women issue um, and, a dis and a discrimination issue and we just felt that if we were speaking about the perpetrators then we would be distracting from that. So I think it's, a, it's an interesting question um, but it's not something that we focused on. 
Um, I know there's been limited research in the field of misogynistic abuse on Twitter, which sadly found that a percentage of it comes from other women as well as from men on the internet. Um, in terms of individual journalists who are covering the stuff really well, both Amelia Tate, who I mentioned before, who speaks to men's rights activists and people like that, and Hussein Kazvani, who's at Mel Magazine, covers this really well. So if you are interested, they're good people to follow. At the back there. Uh, there's a, sorry, there's a mic just coming your way. Yes. So, um, a similar question. Um, I remember uh, reading about the 2017 elections, a report from um, Sheffield University that looked at abuse um, um, among MPs more generally, and they actually found that abuse is higher among ma male MPs, um, and especially party leaders, um, they were comparing 2015 with 2017, actually. Um, and uh, I was wondering if you have the data also to be able to investigate the type of, the differences in the abuse that is uh, received by males, male MPs versus female MPs, because I suspect there are huge differences there. Yeah, so I think, I mean, we use the machine learning system, um, and I should say that no machine learning system and no algorithm is perfect. Um, we only focused on female MPs, again, because we were looking at the we were looking at violence and abuse against women online. So I do think that having a comparative study is, is interesting, but we did use very different methodologies. Um, we used um, the methodology that the data scientists use, and pardon me, I'm not a data scientist, so she used um, the, the methodology she used was data from a YouTube uh, abusive comments, and I think the University of Sheffield used a different data set. We also had um, a list of keywords that were associated with gender um, forms of abuse as well as other intersectional forms of abuse that we tested that against. So I think the methodology was different there, um, which is why there were obviously different results. I do, think it's, it, I do think it's an interesting comparison, but again, there is a very gendered nature to the type of abuse that women face, and we didn't want to make this comparing men to women, but focusing specifically on women's experiences of abuse online. Again, one thing that is interesting, thinking about whose voice gets heard most on social media, is when you do the sort of machine learning analysis on journalists, it's quite unequivocal, your 10 most engaged, most influential accounts from the general election are all men. When you do it amongst politicians, it's not. It's fairly evenly split between male and female MPs. So there may also be a difference depending on how people react to different kinds of public figure, but it's a whole other kind of field of research you'd need to tease out. Do we have any other questions? Just at the back there and then to you. Oh, at the back first. Um, no, that's OK. Hi. So you've concentrated quite heavily on Twitter, but I wanted to ask about your opinions on Instagram, because that, of course, is the largest social media platform. It's dominated by women. And time and time again, it's been shown to be the worst for our mental health. And I wanted to know what your opinion really was on that. And I think personally that it's increasing this sort of backtracking onto a pit really heavy emphasizing on appearances, especially in young girls. Yeah, so we, we focus mainly on Twitter, as you know. Um, but, you know, we do have general recommendations for social media companies. So Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, will have 
sort of abusive, um, so Twitter calls it hateful conduct and abuse policies, but I think Twitter, uh, Facebook calls it a hate speech policy. I think Instagram calls it an abuse and harassment policy. Um, so most of these platforms have policies in place where say, that, that say that this form of abuse isn't allowed. Um, and obviously what we are asking companies to do is be more transparent about how they are interpreting um, their own policies, whether or not they include gender or identity-based abuse, um, and making sure that they're enforcing that consistently. I know that there's been a, a lot of really interesting research into the fact that the mental health impact of Instagram posts, the fact that a lot of the ideals of, about certain body types and um, sort of reinforcing negative and harmful gender stereotypes of women is leading to younger women, um, you know, sometimes engaging in self-harm. So I think it's a really interesting um, issue. It's not something that we've personally looked at, though. Um, we are on Instagram, but we're most active on Twitter. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. What we found interesting is because we started five or six years ago, and we all feel quite old now in social media terms, uh, we are... We, we sort of feel comfortable with Twitter, and what we do is we have one person who does Instagram for us, who's actually a man, who takes most of what we do on Twitter and just replicates it, because we want to reach people who are on Instagram, because we're aware that a lot of people only come across our campaign once they have children and realise how um, shocking some of it is, um, and we can only reach them on Instagram, but we, we don't really get into the whole sort of image thing because we're not putting up pictures of ourselves, we're putting up pictures of toys, which made me also think about what Stephanie said about how anger spreads faster than joy. I think that might be one reason why our campaign took off, because often it's of something like the little nurse and the junior doctor, and people feel outraged and it gets retweeted. Um, but our tone is always reasonable. We never, we don't ever attack anyone. We just say, we don't really like this, could it be changed, and that's it. So I don't know if that's the other things. There's no, yeah, we're not sort of using emotive language. Yeah, I had a, I had a question for Olivia about um, whether the same problems with gender stereotyping of toys and advertising to children are um, as prevalent in countries that have achieved a higher level of gender equality where you might expect the public culture to be less tolerant of those gender stereotypes. And I'm wondering particularly the Nordic countries, whether you see this in, in those countries in the same way. Yeah, we don't, we haven't done a huge survey we know we've been uh, Germany is the nearest we've sort of been in contact with who might have better um, gender equality who actually say it's as bad as here um, we haven't had any direct uh, references from the Nordic or Scandinavians uh, we find we get tweets from Spain France Italy they're worse generally um, and but we haven't really we've kept it very UK and Ireland based um, but yeah, it would be a really interesting one to see how things are portrayed, particularly in advertising. Actually, advertising, there are some very good examples. There was a French catalogue did a really good uh, equal play advert, and there have been some good toy adverts from, I think, Norway. But again, we, they were a few years ago. Yeah. Over here. Yeah, thank you. Um, I had a couple of questions. One was on um, the enforcement questions and um, whether you're, when, when you feed these findings, which are truly shocking, to policymakers, because government's been talking about this recently a, a lot, um, what response are you getting? Because technologically, it, I mean, it must be fairly straightforward to be able to track down uh, perpetrators of online um, hate and trolling and all the rest of it. Um, is, is it just a resource issue? Is that the response? Or, you know, it, 
Uh, and for example, uh, Lucy Powell's proposals <laughs> recently about privacy settings and you know those sorts of things. Are there are there uh, proposals that actually stand a chance of being um, enacted? And then I wanted to ask a question around the gender stereotyping thing because I'm really uh, I, I am convinced by uh, what you've shown and just thinking about my own experiences as well and bringing up a daughter. Um, where is all this coming from and, and wanted to share with you some work I'm, I'm doing at the moment which is on uh, women in uh, film and TV and they're saying uh, so it's linking with their uh, career prospects uh, as well but what they're saying is that they're dealing with male decision makers um, who have completely gendered assumptions which inform the way they deal with them as uh, employees or freelancers um, and that they routinely talk about programming in terms of women's programs and men's programs and you can understand it when advertisers are obviously aiming that so it's kind of where where is this coming from and where can you aim and what can what can we all be doing as consumers and citizens other than you know joining your campaigns and calling all of this out okay shall we take those two questions in the order they were given so if perhaps you'd first like to talk about the yeah, yeah so initially I really wanted to look at also the in, like law enforcement and how they're dealing with this issue, but just even looking at Twitter alone and the company response was quite uh, a challenge. So it's not something that I have researched um, in depth. What um, I did ask some questions about it to the women that I interviewed, and for those women who did report um, their experiences of you know violence or abuse to the police, it was a sort of mixed bag of responses. Um, and usually, the higher profile you had, the better the response would be. So female politicians spoke, you know, said that the police often took the threats against them very seriously. But that was also because they had access to specific um, police forces that you know function within Parliament. Um, if I, you know, I've spoken to journalists with slightly lower profiles um, who said that when they've called the police they have you know they haven't been able to really understand the nature of what's happening to them um, and a common response would be well why don't you just get off Twitter which of course isn't a good enough response um, you know five years ago I remember speaking to Laura Bates who you know coined the everyday sexism project um, and I think she told me that I believe she told me that when she reported the abuse they asked her what's Twitter so I think that's changed hopefully that was about five years ago um, but I think there's a lot more in terms of what needs to be done with law enforcement and training and making sure they understand the nature nature of the problem, understanding the current legislation that exists. So most of the time when this stuff is prosecuted, it's um, through the Malicious Communications Act um, and another communi Communications Act in the, in the country. Um, so they're just interpreting existing legislation. Um, and then in terms of the new legislation that's proposed, um, anonymity, I, I completely understand um, how it perpetuates online abuse um, and that it can make it very difficult to therefore tar you know, track down um, perpetrators of abuse. But for amnesty, we have to think about how we balance all of the different human rights. And for us, anonymity is a really, really powerful tool for freedom of expression online, particularly for people in countries where there are oppressive regimes or you need to criticize the government. So you know, making um, accounts sort of public and having to make, not public, but making sure that accounts are not anonymous and ensuring, you know, using real identities and real names can actually pose a threat to freedom of expression online. So we wouldn't necessarily agree with the legislation that's put forward, but we completely understand the sentiment behind it, that obviously there are these closed Facebook groups that are perpetuating hate and inciting violence against others. And 
this shouldn't be allowed on social media platforms because that's what social media platforms say isn't allowed. So it's much more about enforcement of own their own policies versus creating legislation, especially when your country like the UK, the legal ramifications setting that precedent can have in other countries um, can be quite dangerous. Okay, did you want to add anything I mean, the idea of the police not fully understanding it, I, th I think, is such a powerful one. And to, to go back to your question on Instagram, I thought of Instagram as a really nice platform where nobody shouts at me about my political beliefs. But then I have three teenage younger brothers and sisters, and their experience of Instagram is very different. I was kind of going, this is the lovely cakes platform. And they're like, no, this is the bullying place. Yeah. Um, I'd only add to that that the tech companies don't as yet have a huge impetus to deal with this. Um, whether or not you know the argument that perhaps Twitter is already too big and unwieldy to be particularly well policed, um, I think comes secondary to the idea of whether or not Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, these platforms need to police these things when they will start to lose revenue. Um, one big argument around this, for instance, is that we know that in countries that ban um, Nazi symbolism, Twitter can get rid of it. You won't see it if you set your setting to be in Germany. You won't see any of this stuff. But it doesn't do that in the UK and the US. So what sort of pressure you can put on a tech company to do this, I think, is another big question. Okay, okay and Olivia, you're going to respond to the second, second question, question, which is where stereotypes come and where these stereotypes are yeah, coming so from. You're, you're, yeah, I think, well, uh, I think there's a misogyny in society and we're still tackling it, really. Um, one of the things that I thought maybe didn't come through enough in my presentation is that girls are, are being brought up to believe they can be anything and that they can aspire to be a boy, and boys are not being brought up to aspire to be a girl or to be like their mothers. And I think that is part of the problem. We, have, we haven't written it ourselves, but there's a brilliant blog we tweet quite a lot about devaluing femininity. We're not about saying it's wrong to be feminine or it's wrong to like pink. It's just about boys understanding that they can identify with girls. Because there's all these myths out there that boys only watch TV programs with girls in, boys only read books with girls in, uh, women only read books with women in, with pink covers, like you were saying about TV programs for women. And I think a lot of that is based on marketing myths that have built up in the last 30 years. There is now research to show that actually loads of boys watch all sorts of TV programs for children. Um, interestingly, uh, some of the research only works if you ask the boys to close their eyes and not look at each other when they put their hand up to say what their favorite TV program is. Um, but it's enough, and now you're getting more children who are prepared to like everything. Um, and then you also mentioned the sort of who's in charge. Um, yeah, we find with the toy industries, there are a lot of male dinosaurs, white male dinosaurs, and they, that is just how they've been characterised to us by practically everyone. We don't know if that will change. Um, in TV, I think it's tricky, because actually loads of women work in TV. Um, I used to work for Nickelodeon in the digital uh, side, and there would still be segmentation. It would still say, this is a programme for two to four-year-old girls. This is a thing for three to five-year-old boys. They do it with clothes, they do it with toys, and until we can get rid of those boy and girl buyers, boy and girl marketing, men and women, you know, there's, I don't know if there's also been stuff on social media about the pink tax, so, you know, pink razors cost more than normal Bic razors. Um, look up Bic for her and have a laugh on YouTube. Um, there's, what else is that? There's all those sorts of things where it's constantly saying 
men and women are different and therefore men should treat women differently and yet actually it's just about respect and equality. Um, I don't know what can be done. <laughs> well, I, I think on that note, I'm afraid that we've run out of time. Um, if you do have questions that you want to ask, we're about to have tea and coffee and then we'll be back here um, for the keynote at 10 past four. But uh, could you all join me in thanking Asmina, Stephanie and Olivia.